With the reforms in the criminal justice system, there was a movement to bring a ballot initiative to remove the three strikes law this year in California. However, the initiative did not collect enough signatures and will not be on the ballot this November. Is California's three strikes law too harsh? Or is it necessary to have strict punishments for people who repeatedly commit violent crimes? In other words, you're going to reduce the crime rate far more by focusing on the people who are most likely to continue committing crimes. How do you know somebody is most likely to continue committing crimes? Because they've got a criminal history, a lengthy one. Also, in California, it costs us about $106,000 per year to house one inmate in prison. When compared to college costs, this is more than double. But is there a higher cost to society by letting the criminals commit more crimes? For every armed robbery, there is a cost. For every homicide, there is a cost in terms of lost productivity, lost tax revenue, lost um, you know, earnings of income over the course of a person's life. The cost of crime is much, much greater than the cost of incarceration. It isn't even close, it's a hundredfold. To understand the three strikes law, I sat down with Michael Reynolds. Michael is a private attorney. The murder of his sister prompted him and his father to draft the three strikes law. Michael will discuss with us how the three strikes law works and the consequences of giving a second chance to the wrong person. When you misplace your sympathy and say, oh yes, we want to give somebody a second chance, well that's fine, but at whose expense? You're not gonna say that if you know what the percentage chance is of you being that person's next murder victim. I'm Siamai Karami. Welcome to California Insider. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to see you again. Thank you for inviting me. We want to talk to you about the three strikes law. There was a ballot initiative that failed this year. Uh, they, they didn't get enough signatures. There's some criticism on this three strike law. Can you explain what it is? Um, to understand how the three strikes law works, you have to understand how California's uh, criminal, uh, um, criminal uh, justice system works. Um, California crimes are divided into three types of crimes. You have uh, your lowest level crimes, which are infractions. Uh, they don't require a guilty state of mind. It's strict liability. And an example of that would be running a stop sign. Uh, the next level of crime is a misdemeanor. Misdemeanors are typically more medium level crimes that um, don't generally result in um, incarceration in state prison. However, they do, um, they are, you're at least eligible for incarceration in county jails, um, and oftentimes there's a fine to pay. Um, and then you have the most serious types of crimes, uh, which are called felonies. Um, and uh, felonies are typically punishable with time in state prison. Among felonies, which are the most serious types of crimes, um, there are three types of felonies in Calif under California law. There are your, what I would call garden variety felonies. Um, that would include, say, grand theft auto, um, you know, stealing a car, I don't mean playing the video game. Um, and then uh, there is another category at the top of that uh, hierarchy called violent felonies. And those are pretty much self-explanatory, what, what you would expect of a violent felony. And then there's this intermediate category called serious felonies. However, serious felonies, um, and they're, they're defined in a statute, 1192.7 of the California Penal Code, um, 
it's basically everything on the list of violent felonies is also on the list of serious felonies. There are a few exceptions of serious felonies that don't also appear on the violent felony list. The most um, significant of those is residential burglary. So not breaking into a warehouse in the middle of the night, but breaking into an inhabited dwelling. Um, and the reason the legislature made uh, a, a residential burglary uh, a serious felony uh, so that it's eligible for certain sentencing enhancements is because it's a very dangerous felony. While there may not necessarily be violence that accompanies a residential Somebody burglary, could get hurt in it's the process. very easy for that to happen, right? I mean, the only reason it doesn't become a violent felony is because you know, the, the homeowner doesn't trip over the burglar on his way to, to the bathroom in the middle of the night. Um, so, uh, yeah, very dangerous felony. Uh, what Three Strikes did is it said, um, it, it, and it was actually a fairly simple law, um, it, it basically said that there would be an alternate sen sentencing structure that is available for people who are recidivists, that is, people who have a certain number of prior felony convictions. And under th the Three Strikes law, to get this, the highest sentence under that, which is 25 years to life, you're, you had to commit a felony as your triggering um, crime, but you had to have at least two serious or violent prior felonies, not garden variety felonies, two serious or violent prior felonies, plus a current felony conviction, and then you would be eligible for the three strike sentence. Even then, the judges had discretion not to impose the three strikes penalty as a result of a decision that came out two years after the law was passed called People v. Romero. Um, and what we found when that law, um, uh, after the law was passed, was that crime dropped uh, precipitously. Uh, but it wasn't just a stab in the dark. We did our research before we drafted that law, and we found that um, in statistics that had been provided uh, by the Department of Justice, 5.9% uh, of the felons were responsible for 60% of the felonies. So we had this explosion of crime in California, and it had just been getting worse and worse and worse until the, the, the early 1990s. It just became intolerable. Uh, and that, of course, is when my sister was killed uh, by repeat felons who were on parole. And, and sure enough, uh, the rap sheets of the, the, the men who killed my sister were um, case in point of why you have to change the balance of power in favor of law-abiding citizens and not in favor of these criminals with a rap sheet a mile long. So you mentioned a small percentage of people would do these repeat felonies, right? That's right. So if you zero in on them and lock those people up for long periods of time, you'll have a disproportionate um, result, uh, you'll have a disproportionate impact on the crime rate. In other words, you're going to reduce the crime rate far more by focusing on the people who are most likely to continue committing crimes. How do you know somebody is most likely to continue committing crimes? Because they've got a criminal history, a lengthy one. And so when they're up for a felony conviction, if you see they've got two serious or violent priors already, lock them up for a long period of time. To give you a better understanding of the timeline, California's Three Strikes Law was originally enacted in 1994. In 2004, Prop 66 was proposed to change the three strikes law. The goal was to minimize the chances of criminals getting a life sentence. But this ballot measure was rejected by the voters. Then in 2012, a new ballot measure, Prop 36, was passed. It changed the law to impose a life sentence 
only when the third strike is a serious or violent felony. There are a number of people that got into the prison for 25 years or life for somewhat lower level crimes. What are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, the big problem with that is misreporting. Um, and it should come as no surprise in your industry that there is a, uh, a, a, either an intentional bias or a lack of follow-up on the actual facts of cases um, by the Associated Press, by Reuters, and by whoever it is that the major newspapers and major media pick up their news from. Um, so when, keep in mind, somebody to uh, be eligible for a three strikes, 25 to life sentence, their current conviction has to be a felony. Stealing cookies is not a felony, okay? If I punch you in the face, get you in a headlock, grab the cookies out of your pocket, and then go running, it's not just stealing cookies, okay? There's assault and battery involved there as well. Um, if I threaten you with a weapon and then take a slice of pizza from you, that's not stealing a piece of pizza. That's a strong-armed robbery, okay? Because you're using force or fear to get something that belongs to another person. So it's not the same thing as just grabbing a piece of pizza and running. Second thing that's not highlighted in those media accounts is that the, the person who steals a bottle of cologne or steals a piece of pizza, you know, which we know it has to be more than just stealing something like that in order to be a felony. The other problem is that the media is not talking about the massive number of prior serious or violent convictions that person almost certainly has on their record. To qualify for three strikes, they have to have at least two serious or violent priors. So somebody who's got a murder and a residential burglary and then does a strong-arm robbery for a piece of pizza, sorry, don't have a lot of sympathy for you, okay? You've got a, you've demonstrated a propensity to violence. You've got a trail of victims in your past. We're not going to wait for you uh, to kill somebody else and another blood-soaked corpse to show up at the county coroner's office before we lock you up. We are shifting the balance of power in favor of the victim. Um, so that's what the media was not focusing on. Furthermore, keep in mind that when the judge decides to put somebody away on a 25 to life under three strikes, they've got that offender's entire criminal history in front of them, something that's most likely being concealed by the media, okay? And they have discretion not to utilize the three strike sentencing feature based on that entire criminal background. So the so-called pizza thief who got you know, 25 to life, the judge knew exactly what that guy's criminal record had been and seen the lengthy criminal history and decided that so, this person needed to go away for a long time. So the idea is to see what the risks are for this person being out and what risks they could have for the society and use that tool to... That's right, that's right. And, you know, because the system relies to some extent on the discretion of judges, it's Th th there's, you've introduced a human element, and it's not going to be perfect, but we shouldn't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, right? Because there's another human element, too, because that person may change, too. The criminal might change. They and might there is, change. There is some elements on both sides. Yes, but the, the, the likelihood of that criminal changing while they're outside of prison and have access to more victims is remote. The likelihood of somebody becoming a crime victim as a result of that person being released early from prison is very high. And again, we have to, we have to factor that balance in favor of the person who isn't committing crimes rather than in favor of the person who is. Some argue that it costs $106,000 per inmate per year. 
why don't we spend this money on university tuitions for people instead of having them end up in prison? Yes, and I've heard this oftentimes. Uh, you know, the the cost of the cost of Yale is less than the cost of jail, um, and it's a false dilemma because the uh, people who are in jail on three strikes, or I should say, in prison on three strikes offenses, you know, serious and violent felonies, these are are not people who would otherwise be eligible for Yale or Harvard. Um, the but the real question isn't what's the cost of sending them to Yale or Harvard versus the cost of incarceration. That's not the dilemma that we should be looking at. The, the choice that we have is what's the cost of incarceration versus what's the cost of not incarcerating them. When you have somebody who has, again, this demonstrated propensity to violence, this recidivism in their background, and you don't lock them up, the cost is much greater than $106,000 a year. In fact, the Department of Justice, um, back in 1996 under Janet Reno, did a study um, that uh, quantified the costs of each crime that is committed, you know, broadly uh, on average across society. Of course, you know, the cost would be higher in California because everything's so expensive here. But um, it found that, you know, for every armed robbery, there is a cost. For every homicide, there is a cost in terms of lost productivity, lost tax revenue, lost um, you know, earnings of income over the course of a person's life. You know, with uh, armed robberies, uh, you know, there is a cost in terms of private security uh, as people spend money on things like you know, their own guns or on dogs or on security measures that they would otherwise spend on other things, but they have to spend this money um, on, uh, on things they don't want to spend their money on, so, or car alarms, things like that. Um, and that study concluded that the cost of crime is much, much greater than the cost of incarceration. It isn't even close. It's a hundredfold. Um, and, uh, you know, so those are the, that, that's the dichotomy that, and, and the public choice dilemma. As far as the $106,000 per year that we spend in California, it needn't be so high. I mean, you look at the cost of per, um, you know, per bed of maximum security prison in Texas, um, it's, you know, something like a half to a third of what we spend in California. And that has to do more with the deals that have been made uh, between, uh, you know, the uh, government and the, uh, um, you know, and, and various unionized interests that either construct the prisons or man the prisons. Um, that's, that's a public policy issue here. We've chosen to make it too expensive. Uh, but even at $106,000 uh, per bed per year, it's far, far more expensive to have these people out jeopardizing our safety. Some people argue that when people get older, if somebody made a mistake, did something really bad multiple times and faced this law in their 20s or 30s, when they get to their 50s or 60s, they change as people get older. How, how would th this law impact them? Well, keep in mind that when you have to serve a 25 to life sentence, what that means is, is that you're eligible for parole after you've served 25 years. Now under three strikes, you have to serve 80% of your term. So that would mean you're eligible for, for parole after 20 years. So if you get a uh, you know, 25 to life sentence for a, um, you know, for a series of crimes, 
um, that you have committed and the triggering felony happens to have happened when you were 20. So you've got some lengthy history before that, obviously two serious or violent priors before you turn 20. Uh, and on your 20th birthday, you commit a garden variety felony. You get 25 to life. If you behave yourself in prison, you're eligible for parole on your 40th birthday. So the math kind of takes care of itself. At that point, the parole board can look at the person and see whether or not they have calmed down. But um, there's, another, uh, there, there's, there's another issue there, too, as well. And um, it, you know, there are some crimes for which you know, we do have life without the possibility of parole. So as a society, we have recognized that there are some criminals who are incorrigible uh, or, or the crimes they've committed are so heinous that even if they can repent, they still have to serve a life sentence and they should never be let out of jail for what the horrible things they've done. In fact, that's why we have a death penalty. Can you tell us the story of your sister and how this law came? You, you guys, you and your family were part of this law. You guys actually wrote this law, right? Yeah, and well, I, and when you say you guys, I mean, I, I, have, to give, I have to give credit to, to people who've played a much greater role than myself. You know, first of all, my father. Um, there were a lot of uh, 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 local uh, district attorneys, judges. Um, there were uh, some po politicians, you know, Bill Jones, who ran for who was our Secretary of State in California and, and ran for U.S. Uh, Senator here. Um, uh, and there, there were some others as well, uh, Dan Lundgren, uh, Pete Wilson. There, there were there were a lot of good a lot of good people who helped with this. But the law got its um, it, the genesis of the law was uh, my sister's uh, killing. She was uh, murdered by repeat felons on parole. Uh, this happened. Uh, when I say 30 years ago, it, it was on July 1st of uh, 1992 when she was killed, so almost exactly 30 years ago. Um, and um, uh, these, um, if, if you looked at their prior rap sheet, you'd see, okay, they hadn't been convicted of any murders yet, but armed robberies, I mean, they had a lot of, they had the sort of dangerous propensity to commit serious and violent felonies that you knew sooner or later they were going to kill somebody if you didn't stop them. Um, and, and sure enough, uh, that, that's what happened. Now, for some of our audience members that may not have had any experience with crime, can you tell us your experience of like being in a situation where you've lost a family member and then people coming out of prison? What is it like having somebody out there that has done something like that to you, your family? And it's, it's horrible. Um, and it's, it, if you think of your life as like, and this has been 30 years, so I've had a little time to think about how it's affected me because you never know how something affects you in the moment. And as time goes on, you learn more and more about what it's done to you. Um, and you see what it's done to other people you love. Um, and as hard as it was on me um, to lose my sister, it wasn't until I had my own kids that I realized how hard that had to be on my parents. Um, and. Uh, and, you know, I watched my parents go through it, but I didn't, it didn't really internalize to me how, how awful it was for them, how much more awful it was for them than it was for me. Um, and your life is kind of like this quilt, and you have patches in it. You know, you have a patch that's your career, a patch that's, uh, you know, a, a big and very important patch that's your wife and your kids and your sister and your brother and your mom and your dad and friends and, and, and church and other things. And you realize when, when that patch gets ripped out, there's no putting it back. It's gone. I mean, there's just, there's just a piece of your quilt that's gone. It's never coming back. I mean, you can focus on other 
parts of your quilt so that you don't, you don't focus on the missing part. But there's no changing the fact that there's a big chunk of your life that's gone and it, it ain't coming back. Um, I mean, those of us who believe in an afterlife believe, you know, we'll see our loved ones, you know, 50, 70 years from now. But, um, you know, but until then, it's gone. And you, what you want to do is stop other people from having to go through it. Um, at least that's, that's the reaction that, that I had, that my family had. It was just, you know, this is... This happened to us. It's happened to a lot of other people. It's happened to thousands and thousands of other people. We got to stop it from happening. How do we stop this from happening? Um, and so you dedicate your energy to trying to stop other people from going through that sort of pain. Um, one of the strange things is, is w when it comes to locking up bad guys, you don't know whose life got saved as a result of doing that. Because, I mean, it could have been your life. I, I could have been killed by somebody who got locked up as a result of the law that was passed that, that, that I had some hand in, right? Um, so, um, but you do, get, you do get a sense of satisfaction. You do get a sense of, of gratitude um, that things have changed and gotten better. And when you see the, the murder statistics dropping, when you see the, the, the homicide rate going down, you know that, that life is getting better and people are going to have a chance at life that, that your sister didn't have. Um, and, and, and so that, um, that, gives you, that gives you some consolation. The changes that are happening, some, some of these uh, criminals that have committed crimes like that are getting out. You know, we want to have a balance where we want to give people second chances also. But how does that affect the family members? Is there any fear of that person coming after the rest of the family? Or, or is there, how does well, it feel Well, there, there are in some cases. I, I've, met, um, I, I've, I've met so many crime victims um, through, uh, you know, the, the, the crime victims movement. And, you know, many of them... Um, the criminals who have victimized them, killed family members, or, or beaten family members, attacked their family members. Um, you know, they're, it, it might be gang-related, um, and there are vendettas uh, that, um, you know, so there, there are serious threats to those people, um, you know, or to the relatives of the victims uh, that are posed by the criminals that are in prison and are clamoring to get out and, and continue to, to uh, sow terror. Um, that wasn't the case for us, uh, thank heavens. Um, the, you know, one of the uh, uh, two that, um, there were two men involved in my sister's murder. One of them was gunned down by the police uh, when he tried to shoot it out with them. Um, he was, uh, they, they had a tip. Um, in fact, the, the day that my sister died, um, you know, she died at uh, approximately midnight on July 1st. We went on a radio talk show later that, that morning um, and, uh, um, during the radio talk show that my dad and I were doing, it was the Ray Appleton show. Um, you know, great. And, and by the way, some of the some of the radio talk shows were instrumental in getting three strikes passed. Uh, you know, John and Ken were real heroes in that in that saga. Um, the folks up at KGO Radio in San Francisco, uh, Ray Appleton, who I just mentioned, a local in the Fresno area, um, and uh, it was during that show that one of the killers. Um, 
uh, you know, pals, acquaintances, friends, whatever, um, turned him in, called the police and said, hey, you know, I'm listening to this radio show and the, this Reynolds thing and uh, you know, I know who did the killing um, and this is who it is. Um, so the police um, figured out where he was and they went to go arrest him um, and uh, he didn't want to be taken alive. He wasn't going down easily. So he burst out of the apartment where he was holed up, took a shot at the cops uh, and then the cops shot back and got him. Uh, thank, thank heavens. Um, and you know nobody innocent had to uh, be uh, uh, killed as a result of that. Um, the other one who was involved in the killing um, is, uh, uh, he's doing time now. He's been in and out of prison since. He's a great example of somebody who is eligible for a 25 to life sentence under three strikes but kept getting lenient judges who refused to impose the law. Um, and so as a result, he's victimized other people. I don't believe he's killed anybody. Um, but um, uh, I think he's he's been involved in some pretty pretty bad stuff, stuff that you and I wouldn't do. We are the country where we we forgive people. We are very good at that. What I've what I've noticed well, is that we give chances to people, and that's why we are what we are. We innovate. If somebody fails, if somebody makes a mistake, is there a way for us to balance this? And there's there's a group of people that are saying, okay, you know what? putting people away, maybe they learned a lesson in the process. Is the criminal justice system as it is allowing people to, to come back and do better? Well, I think we have to ask ourselves who deserves the second chance, the innocent victim or the, you know, the, the person who's committed multiple serious and violent felonies? Because when you misplace your sympathy and say, oh, yes, we want to give somebody a second chance, well, that's fine, but at whose expense? You know, it's, it's, it's easy to say, well, you know, yeah, I, I, I want to give somebody a second chance because they did something awful. But you're not going to say that if you know what the percentage chance is of you being that person's next murder victim, right? Um, so at some point or another, we have to get sensible with people and recognize that somebody who continues to commit serious or violent felonies is... Um, not somebody who we should be giving a second chance to. We need to shift that balance of power in favor of the future victim rather than in favor of the felon who refuses uh, to learn from their ways. Keep in mind that under the three strikes law, you don't get the 25 to life sentence unless you've committed and been convicted of two serious or violent priors plus your third felony. And the average, again, is 14 plus. So um, you're not talking about, uh, you're not talking about wayward youth who steals a car, makes a mistake, does something foolish uh, that wishes he could take back. Um, you're talking about hardened criminals. And the fact that we saw the uh, reduction in crime that we did as a result of locking up that hardcore group of recidivists uh, evidences that we made the right choice as a policy. And um, we're making, we've been making the wrong choices for the last 10 years, and now that's suddenly manifesting itself so in elevated crime rates. On. Do you have any other thoughts for our audience? Well, you know, when I think about, you know, the different ways in which um, crime was tackled in the United States uh, back in the uh, 1990s, you know, we experienced uh, tremendous reductions in crime nationwide, but the two approaches, in fact, the two jurisdictions that really sucked down that national average were the two most populous states. Um, New York and California. I know New York's not the most populous state, or second most populous state anymore, but back in the 90s, it was the second most populous state. Uh, New York and California took very different approaches, though. 
Um, the New York approach um, was, uh, you know, the, the, the broken windows approach, uh, the stop and frisk approach. Um, and uh, Rudy Giuliani was famously the mayor there, and he had tremendous success in reducing crime. Um, but the, the approach that they took, which was really kind of a police state approach, massively increasing the police presence on the streets um, and um, massively uh, increasing the, aggress the, the aggressiveness of the police presence, um, it was effective and, and it was certainly preferable to what they had done previously uh, under Mayor Dinkins. Um, but the but but that works really only in in a um, an urban setting uh, where you have um, a, you know a dense urban population center where most of your crime is taking place and California is too spread out to have that kind of a police presence. Uh, furthermore, it's it's very expensive to have that much police that 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 large a police force having that much daily interaction with people. In California, we took a different approach. We didn't massively increase the uh, police presence. Um, what we did is we zeroed in on the people that were committing the crimes, and we locked those people up. And what we found, um, what we found before we passed the law, you know, when we found that that, that 5.9% that were committing 60% of the serious and violent felonies, before that, we had this um, strange notion that, well, maybe you have different categories of criminals that are committing these types of crimes. You have, you know, your low-level criminals, you have your mid-level criminals, you have your, your car thieves, you have your bank robbers, you have your, your liquor store robbers, and you, you got your killers over here. Turned out, it's all the same people doing all the same crimes. I mean, they, maybe they start out with low-level crimes, but the, when you look at the rap sheets, they, they just increase in frequency and severity of the crimes as they graduate throughout their criminal career. And um, by focusing in on that hardcore group of recidivists, and you know, the ones that have committed multiple serious and violent crimes, we were able to achieve decreases in the crime rates that were equivalent, in fact, better in some, in some circumstances uh, than what New York was achieving, but at a lower cost um, and also um, with, without having uh, essentially a police state in our dense urban areas. Mike Reynold, private attorney, it was great to have you on California Insider. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It was great to see you.